Seder. So uh, I wanted to start off every week we've been starting. Thank you for coming. Uh, every week we've been starting with a, a story. Um, so I want, to, uh, I want to read you a story and, um, and tell you why I thought of this story. You don't have this one in front of you. And it's not even a story. It's actually, well, except for Peter, who has the same, uh, same safer. Uh, it's not even a story. It's more, uh, it's more an anecdote. I think we could say, and I'm going to read it in Hebrew. And uh, the name of it is called Iber Gespringen, right? That I have jumped over. Listen to this. Okay? So this is printed in a sefer called Chaim Oran, which is another compendium that was published posthumously uh, about uh, Rabbi Nachman's life, as it's called Chaim Oran, the life of Moreno Rabbi Nachman Mibreslav. So Sipr Litzadik Echa Mimedinas Lita. So he says, I heard from a certain righteous individual from Lithuania. So he started hitting his fingers or snapping his fingers, perhaps. Right? So it sounds like he was snapping his fingers. And And he said with great joy the following words. Says, I have skipped over. Gespringen from a spring. I've sprung over. Now he says here in the Bissograim, in the parentheses, he says, Dilagti, I skipped over, right? Lidagel, to skip over, to skip over. Kilomar, Rabbi Nachman explains what he had heard, this short anecdote from this dying Lithuanian Sadik, right? That Iber Gespringen, I have jumped and skipped over. Kilomar Shaya Besimcha Gedola. Rabbi Nachman says, This man was in great joy. Al Shakofetz Vedileg Ala Oilam Hazeh. For the very fact that he had managed to jump over, to spring over, and to skip over this world, this world and all of its all of its fr- frivolities. Is that a word? Yeah. This word, thank you. This word and all the frivolousness, all the meaningless things in this world, all the vacuous things in this world. So he's managed to jump over it. Ashrelo, praiseworthy is he. And Rabbi Nachman heavily praised this particular tzaddik. Welcome. Thank so Rabbi Nachman praised this tzaddik and said, What an unbelievable thing that this tzaddik, that this righteous individual was able to say such a thing before his death. Right? In the... In the in the main text, in the main manuscript, it says, praiseworthy is he who is able to jump over this world and all of the mistakes, all of the, the comedy of errors that we might find this life to be. Right? The fictions of this world. We talked about that last week. Right? The, the kingdom that was built on lies. That the, that the king's emissary came to this far-off kingdom and discovered everything there was just lies and jokes. And this is something, a theme, a motif that recurs repeatedly in Rabbi Nachman's stories that Rabbi Nachman wants to go ahead and be kore tagar, to go ahead and to declare how miserable and how filled with lies and sheker and alma shekra this world is. And he finds voice for that kind of criticism. He finds voice either here in the, in the voice of a Lithuanian tzaddik, a righteous Lithuanian man right before he dies, or in stories about a king that sends an emissary to go and take a picture of another king. And in all these stories, one of the recurring motifs is that the world that we find ourselves in is a world that's unfortunately a world of lies. Not so much do we find truth. Last Gemara and Sota tells us that in the, uh, in the times of the Messiah, so people will look for the truth and it will be very, very hard to find it. Right? That, uh, I think it's not so hard to go ahead and associate that with the world that we find ourselves in, the reality we find ourselves in. Um, that uh, that there, there are plenty lies that we tell ourselves, that the world tells us, 
and um, it's very confusing. So Rabbi Nachman praises this word, but what I think is, is kind of interesting here, and something we're going to come back to tonight, is that in this printing of it, which comes from, uh, Professor Tzvi Mark says it comes from a printing, a Ksav Yad of Rav Pinchas in 1874, so it says here, praiseworthy is, we, is he who is able to jump over this world, its meaningless, vacuous things, Vita'u Yosav, and its mistakes. And in other printings, so that's very, that's subversive, more subversive than in other printings, it says Ta'anugav, and its pleasures. And it's not saying in this manuscript that he's managed to jump over the pleasures of the world. It's possible that this tzaddik, although probably unlikely, it's possible that this Lithuanian tzaddik is one who went ahead and enjoyed the world as well, and still was able to go ahead and somehow jump over everything, jump over all the meaninglessness. Nevertheless, over here, some of the manuscripts have Vita'anugav, that he was able to go ahead and to push away all the pleasures of this world. Now, why do I mention this to start off? Because I was looking uh, at the uh, Sfas Emes. I've been trying to learn it a little bit this year. And the Sfas Emes, who is one of the Ger Rebis, and um, he writes in his monumental work, and Shnas Tarmag. So he quotes over this. He says, why, was, uh, why did Avram and Sarah choose to name this child Yitzchak? I mean, they didn't really have a choice. Really the only person in the Torah that God directly names, basically. And uh, so he says he heard from his father. Shamati mi Mariv Rabbi. So he heard from uh, he heard from the Chidusharim. I guess his grandfather, Chidusharim. So he heard from him, Mariv Rabbi. Avi Adoni Zakeni Zakron Levracha. I heard from him, he says that the name Yitzchak is because sometimes when we look in the Torah and we find sin, so for example at the base of Harsinai, says Vayakumulitzachik, that they got up to laugh and to make mirth and a mockery. That Avodazara, Giliarayas, Shechastamim, right? The big three Averos, right? All these, these terrible sins are, are considered to be a tzchok, right? So there's two types of tzchok, the Svasemis says. There's the tzchok of a person who laughs because they're enjoying sin, a person who laughs because they feel like they're getting their, their licks in this world. And then there's the laugh, that kind of laugh at the end, the tzchok liyoimacharon, to be able to laugh at the end and to say all of this, all the pleasures and all the mistakes and all the lies of this world. We're a meaningless thing. And that kind of a person will look to us as very serious sometimes. Because it takes a lot of focus to pass through life like that. Which is why Yitzchak, his name is sort of in Congress with how we portray him in Chazal and in the Torah. Of a person who is a very little words, the least of all the Avos. And a person who is very associated with pachad, with fear, with gvura, with forbearance and, and keeping things inside. So what kind of a name is Yitzchak and he shall laugh? So that laugh is the laugh, the last laugh. Right, I'm thinking. I always say I'm thinking of a song. Right, this beautiful song. Uh, uh, my my dad's a big Dire Straits fan, so we have to listen to Mark Knopfler. Everything that comes out from Mark Knopfler. This is gorgeous song, Mark Knopfler and Van Morrison. And it's, it's called the Last Laugh. And it's very, it's very the Last Laugh. Baby is yours. Just played at the Beacon. Right. <laughs> so we always think we want to have the last laugh. Yitzchak is the last laugh. It sounds like this chassid in the story is having the last laugh. He's seen everybody be been dragged down. He said, everybody go ahead and get caught up in the lies. I jumped over it. Right? I was able to go ahead and, and surmount and circumvent. I, I gamed this world. I gamed this life. Right? We should be zochet to game life in such a way. They will say the things that, that confound and the things that drag down others, maybe that's something we're able to jump over. So that's the story I wanted to start with and connect to thinking of it because of reading this Fas Emes. And uh, I want to ask tonight's question that we're going to be focusing on is what exactly... So we, we've seen some of the stories of Rabbi Nachman, certainly far more opaque, um, but Rabbi Nachman told parables as well. Uh, whereas the stories are contained in Sipure Maisios, 
the 13 main stories of Rabbi Nachman. So there's Hosafos, there's additions, and there's also, we find in Kisveyad, various Breslov manuscripts. So we find that people have gone ahead and have collected far more than those 13 main stories, the 13 classic stories. Right? We have other Sfarim, like, uh, like um, Sipur and Niflaim, Right, wondrous stories of Rabbi Nachman. We have Siach Sarfei Kodesh, six volumes of collected stories that come from everywhere through Rabbi Nachman. We'll get to that in a moment. Right, we have all kinds of, of extended, uh, extended uh, corpus of stories of Rabbi Nachman. And a lot of them do not take the extended form that we see. For example, the seven beggars we've talked about. We talked about the humble king last week. Right, so the question we're going to deal with tonight is: Can we locate a far more easier way? To which to suss out what Rabbi Nachman is trying to go in to teach us. And that will be found in the Mashalim and the Chalomos, the dreams and the Mashalim parables that are said in the name of Rabbi Nachman. And there the message is far clearer. There the message is far more obvious. Uh, I would say obvious, probably still hidden. But our understanding of it, because of their, the compact nature of these parables and the fact that they're expressly uh, taught in order to inculcate a particular message and that no one should be mistaken them and they're far less opaque than, for example, the seven beggars where each story each day is a story within a story and all those beggars are a story within the first story of the two orphans lost in the forest. There's all these various layers of, uh, of, um, of narrative and so complex and, uh, and, and it's so difficult to really understand what exactly it is we're talking about, especially because it occurs over 25 pages. But the, the mashalim are something far more accessible. So we're going to be focusing on the mashalim tonight. But before that, I wanted to just jump back to last week for a second. I got an email from a person who had uh, surprisingly listened to this year. And, uh, and they asked me the following question. I said, Rabbi Rosenfeld... Um, I don't understand how you could go ahead and associate in the story from last week of the humble king that the king hiding behind the pargod, the king hiding behind the curtain. I mentioned the pargod because as we talked about last week, throughout rabbinic literature, we do find that God is mentioned to be mi'achare ha-pargod. For example, Rabbi Yishmael, Kohen Gadol, when he ascends upon high to find out if the gzeir, of the decree of the ten martyrs, of the ten uh, sages who are to be martyred by the Romans, if it's correct or if it has to happen. So he says that when he was ola when he went and ascended upon high, so he said, and he says, this is what I've heard from behind the curtain, from behind the screen. And what he heard was, this is Xera. Uh, so this is maybe that we understand that God, and certainly it was a time that God was, was hidden, right? How could these ten sages be murdered in such cruel, and martyred in such cruel ways? So it's a time of Hester. And the king is indeed behind the curtain. The king is indeed behind, uh, behind the, the parochas, as it were. Indeed, in the Beis HaMikdash itself, the Kodesh HaKedashim, Sancta Sanctorum, was separated from the rest of the Beis HaMikdash by a pargod, by a curtain, by a, by, a, by, a, by that screen. And it was a double screen, right? You would go in on one side and the Kohen God would come through the double curtain and, out, and, and all the way out into, into what would be this place beyond time and space uh, of the Kodesh HaKadashim. I say beyond time and space. I see people sort of cocking their heads a little bit. Time and space, the Gemara has told us that the, the Kodesh HaKadashim ostensibly had specific um, uh, delineations in time and space. Right? It, it, it was a place, right? They were supposed to have measures but the Gemara points out, I think it's a Gemara in Yuma, it says that uh, it doesn't make sense because the Aron shouldn't be able to, f- to fit in, according to that. So he said that the Aron was Einam and Amida, right? That, that basically, I mean, the, the, the trippy interpretation of it is that when you went in to this, to this Kodesh HaKedashim, so it was a place of expanded consciousness and a person, time and space and, and taking up space was, was irrelevant there, which, by the way, is 
how we could go ahead and we can understand the king getting smaller and smaller and smaller as we praise the king more and more and more. It's beyond time and space, right? These concepts become uh, more relevant. So they asked, they said, how can you compare God to the humble king uh, that doesn't seem to play out necessarily in Torah's descriptions and Tanakh's descriptions of God Almighty. So I did a little research because I knew, uh, I knew that one Gemara, the Gemara that appears in Masech the Megillah, that says, Right, so Rabbi Yochanan, the Maradara of Eretz Yisrael, the great sage of Eretz Yisrael, says that any time you find God's greatness, so that place, you'll also find God's humility. And he brings several proofs. We're not going to go through it now because I don't want to dedicate the whole shir to it. But if you look in the Gemara over there, I have over here, the Gemara is on Daf Lamed Aleph Lamed Aleph. So if you look at that Gemara, Yochanan says that it's repeated once in the Torah, it's repeated again in Nevi'im, and it's Meshulash, and it's repeated a third time in the Ksuvim. And he brings specific proofs to say that God, has, uh, that God indeed does obtain the characteristic, the trait of humility, which is why God's closest confidant and, and the one who gives us the Torah, Moshe, is praised most for what trait? Humility, right? The most humble. And that's because Moshe is directly aligned with what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from him and how HaKadosh Baruch Hu is. Moshe imitates God. God is humility. If you look in Sefer, uh, if you look in Sefer Orchas HaChasidim, a classic work uh, in the Musarist, it's not a Musar work, but it's become part of the, of the, of the corpus of, uh, of Musar works. So in there, there's an entire chapter on Bimalas Midas Anava. Uh, singing the praises of the trait, the character trait of humility, and it starts off over there talking about the fact that God is humble, that God has humility as well. And also, I would refer people to the Midrash Tanchuma, uh, the fourth Midrash Tanchuma on Bereshis Rabbah, and they also go ahead and they say that Kodesh Baruch Hu, uh, demonstrates humility in the beginning. Two beautiful examples that are quoted in the Midrash over there. Ben Azai says a beautiful Torah. Ben Azai says that uh, when a king, regular, Melech Basar Adam, king of flesh and blood, and queen for that matter, when they want to go ahead and declare their greatness, they'll say, I built X, right? I built this. Um, their name, right? King X or Queen X built this. But when God builds an entire universe, so his name comes last, right? His name is Bereshus Bara Elohim, not Elohim Bara Bereshus. That God puts himself after his creation. Another example is the fact that ordinarily a Talmud, a student should go ahead and should visit the master. Avram Avinu is instead visited by a Kaddish Baruch Hu at the very beginning of this week's parsha, this past week's parsha. So we find that God does demonstrate various uh, various uh, instances of showing us humility. So there, that's why I, I feel, not me, I'm not the first person to say this, but I feel very comfortable with the understanding of seeing uh, the king behind the curtain, the humble king is identifying that with HaKadosh Baruch That was my email, I think. That was your email? Adrian, oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. So that, no, you know, I looked it up because it was by, but the more you pray, I just don't buy it. I, that, those sections, <laughs> it has to do with him, God, something with like, taking care of widows or taking care of uh, yes. So that, Yasem Valmana. Even though he's a big, even though he's a big shot of king, that he could still think of that could also be merciful. It's not in the Amidah. I'm just saying that Fair. I don't think God. Why pray to God then? The more you pray, in the context of the story, it's when he's praised, the more he's praised, more, I think it's a reverse. I don't think it's, it's very, it's very fair. It's I very fair. I will say, I will say, I'm happy to go through those sources, but I. I, don't wanna, I just, that's it's the question is well taken and uh, I think that's kind of the beauty is that we could go ahead and our interpretations can diverge uh, but certainly I would say that they're 
that you know whether we buy it or not, there is precedent for 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 ascribing humility to God. But that's 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 well and good. That's uh, I, I very much hear the question. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's share. The first thing I wanted to quote is uh, you know the title of the of the series is we haven't really gotten to yet. Uh, it's officially on the poster um, that I so painstakingly drew up. Uh, so it says stories to wake us up. Where does that come from? So it comes from uh, Rav Nassan of Namarov. So Rav Nassan writes in Chaim Oran Os Chafei, number 25. He says, The world says that telling stories, telling tales, weaving yarns. So that's something that goes ahead and it's, it's, it's fit or appropriate to put people to sleep. Now you hear the story and you fall asleep. I always, my Zaydi is a Chron Levracha. I remember uh, whenever we were in his house, so it would be his job to put the grandchildren to sleep. We were there on Shabbos. My Zaydi would tell us the same story over and over again. And it's really like the only story that I have in my wheelhouse. But now I've, in preparation for these shirim, I'm like, uh, now I have a few more stories under my belt. Right? I always, I'm always in awe of people who just like seem to be these storehouses of stories and stories and stories. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> Yeah, so my Zaid used to tell us the story of Androcles and the lion. Uh, and uh, if you know the story, great. If you don't know the story, I could tell it at some other juncture. But we never heard the end of the story. I, I think I'm pretty much making up. The, when I tell it nowadays, I just told it in school because there were like kids whose bus was late and, and there was like a lot of little kids like waiting for an hour on a Friday. So I'm like, all right, story time. And it's the only story I knew. I'm like, I'm not going to do a Rabbi Nachman story with them because I'm just going to mess it up. But, uh, and I want... Their, their contact with me to be their first contact with Rabbi Nachman. I want it to come from someone good. But I started telling the Jacqueline's Alliance story, and I, I'm realizing, like, I literally never heard the ending of the story from my Zaydi, which is actually a very Rabbi Nachman-esque thing to do, because in the most important story, The Seven Beggars, so in that story, so we never hear the story of the seventh beggar. And that's by design. And we're going to maybe speak about that the last year. We're going to talk about uh, a chilling ending to the Maisim Shiva Kapsanim that was penned in a concentration camp of the people waiting for the seventh beggar who is, of course, associated with the Messiah that Rabbi Nachman very specifically didn't tell the end of the story. That the unfinished story is, in fact, the, the only way in which the seventh beggar... So maybe my Zaydi was channeling Rabbi Nachman also, but, uh, but I, I realized like, I sort of made up the end of Androcles and the Lion. But, uh, but story, so, and my Zaid would always fall asleep before us, was the point of me telling you this story, right? It would be like, okay, Zaidi, Zaidi, and he'd be asleep. And he'd be like, I'm not asleep yet. I, I, I need another story. And then you go back downstairs, and then my Bobby would go and get my Zaidi. Anyway, so he said that the world says that we see Pure Maisius telling tales, weaving yarns, is something that's Mesogalashena, something that puts people to sleep. Vania Marti, Vania Marti, and I say, oh, Talmud of my Rebbe here. Of my Zaidi. Ah, Vani Amarti, fortuitous. And I said, Shaidei Sipure Maisios Meorim Vneyadamishnasam. That through telling stories and through telling tales, we could actually wake people up from their sleep. And that's what we talked about. The fact that the stories are meant to not just entertain us, and they are indeed entertaining. Some of them are quite funny, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, some of them are quite funny, but the stories are meant to go ahead and to uplift and to waken and to go ahead and to, and to have us thinking about our lives and our world and what we're doing here. So, how do we interpret these stories? So we're going to start with the first story of this evening. It's called Hayayin HaHungari, right? The Hungarian wine. Okay, so now we're going to the other side of my family, Hungary. Okay, so this story was told between El Taksabla Tishrei Taka, and it appears in Chaim Oran. So the story goes like this, Amr Mashal. 
So this, uh, there's, I, I endeavored to put most things in English tonight. I, I noticed I had made a mistake in doing this last week. I'm going to translate the story, uh, but the, pretty much the rest after these two sources is going to be in English. Amar Mashal, Rabbi Nachman said, and here we see it's explicitly a parable. Shepan achas nosea sachar, nosea sochar gadol yain tov garisher. So there was once a wine merchant who was traveling with Hungarian wine. Now I don't know much about uh, wine in general, but uh, you don't really hear about Hungarian vintages. Although I do know, I just read an article in the New York Times that uh, uh, Chateau, uh, Chateau Rothschild, who makes the world's, you know, most, some of the world's most expensive wines, that they're having the first vintage of Chinese wine. That they have uh, that they've uh, have a huge operation making uh, Chinese Bordeaux. So... So that's what I know about wine. That's basically it. So, so I don't know about Hungarian wine. It might be very good, but apparently in this story, this Hungarian wine is the finest wine that you could get. This is, you know, this is uh, Grand Cru uh, Hungarian wine. It's the fancy stuff. They were traveling with their schayra. They were traveling with their stock of Hungarian wine. So they go ahead and they say, the Mesharis, the assistant to the Socher, the merchant's assistant, and the wagon driver, so they said to the Balabais, to the, to the owner, right, Alo anu nosim mayayin, as they were traveling with this wine, v'anu sovlim atzar kolkach, t'nu lanu We've been traveling for such a long time. You have all this fine wine. Would you let us taste the wine a little bit? Open a crack, open a bottle. Let us have it, right, uncork it. So he says, He gave them, he said, okay, he assented, and he gave them a little bit of the Hungarian wine to drink. So it happened that later on, the Mesharet, who had been given to drink, to taste from this Hungarian wine, finds himself in an inn, finds himself, uh, finds himself drinking wine with, uh, with a whole bunch of other people. And they're praising the wine and they're saying, hmm, you know, this is the most, right, I'm saying sideways, right? This, I'm thinking the most beautiful wine over here. You know, I could taste the, um, I'm getting notes of oak on the palate and, and, it's, and, and, and it has a nice soft finish. This is beautiful wine. It's a good vintage. And Shibchusam, oh, they're praising it. You can imagine them, you know, holding it and drinking. And they said, this must be Hungarian wine. This wine is so good. So this, uh, so in the meantime, this uh, Misharis, the person previously been on the, on the wagon some time ago, so he turns to them, he says, he says, let me taste it. And they gave it to him. And he said, what are you guys talking about? This isn't Hungarian wine at all. It's like the Coke Pepsi test. Right? He says, what, are you, what are you drinking over here? And he says, and they, they heard him say this and they pushed him out and they got angry at him. And he said, Hello, Annie Odea. So, kicked out of the inn, finding himself outside, sitting, on, uh, sitting, on, uh, sitting on the, uh, in the mud, probably. So, he says, He says, Hello, Annie Odea. Saying to no one in particular, I know that this wasn't Hungarian wine at all. Because once upon a time, I was traveling with that merchant, the wine merchant. And I knew what, I was allowed to taste what Hungarian wine is. And they didn't pay attention to him. And he said, In the future, when the Messiah comes, everybody will know when they give the Yain the, HaMashumar, the, the, the protected wine. We'll talk about it in a moment what exactly the protected wine is, the wine that was saved over. Val 
which just means Romanian wine. And they'll say that this is, at the end of days, they're going to give them wine and, they're going to, and it's going to be fake Romanian wine. It's going to be a knockoff. It's going to be a cheap. And they're going to say, oh, this is the Yain HaMashomer. This is the good stuff. Which means our people. Nobody will be able to fool. Anybody want to venture a guess for two minutes? Right? What exactly this parable? It's a parable, obviously. What is this talking about? Bueller, right? And so we know, we know exactly what this parable is talking about because Rabbi Nachman himself explained what the parable is talking about. So that's why I say Rabbi Nachman never, never gave us the pshara to the humble king. Rabbi Nachman never gave us the answer to what exactly, how to unravel the puzzle of the seven beggars or how to unravel the puzzle of the lost princess or how to unravel the, unravel the puzzle of many of his other stories. But here he tells us exactly. So we're going to look for a second at source number one over here and I'm going to show you a rare instance where a story or parable is explicitly given in authorized presentation. Yeah? As a guess, is the wine uh, representative of the secular world and, and then the, uh, you know, you, you'll, you'll get the real wine when Mashiach comes and you really understand. So that, that, that's what, great. What brings you... It's very from of you. Uh, it's very from of you to say fun. that. But, uh, but Rabbi Nachman always takes a step further. Okay. Right? That you'd be... Right? Agav could definitely be read on that level. You could definitely say, oh, you know, the fake wine is people go ahead and they enjoy all the, you know, frivolities. I'm just going to use that word again because I, was, I found out that it was a real word. Right? I'm going to enjoy all this stuff. I'm going to enjoy all this stuff in this world and I'm going to think that that's the really good stuff. But then you're going to find out the Torah. Right? That's the real good stuff. That's nice. Very from, but it ain't it. Yeah. It might be the two different levels of Torah. So mm. More like a hard ace analysis that you think you have it at the shot Remez level, but really it's more the higher level. You see, the closer you get to Uman, somebody that comes back from yeah. Uman, the closer you get to Rabbi Nachman. So very, very close. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman himself basically says exactly what it is, and it follows. It's, we're talking about two different levels of Torah, for sure. Excellent, right? Welcome back from Uman. But so cool, you Breslov. the end, everybody will be Breslov. So, uh, so before we go ahead and we hear the authorized interpretation of the story, I want to introduce you, uh, and I put the picture here, because you have to see what, what does it mean for a person to say Right, that Rabbi Nachman praised an individual like that who said, that I jumped over. What kind of an individual would say that? I would think that the, the individual in the picture over here is the kind of individual that would say at the end of their life, I jumped over this world. I was able to go ahead and I was able to skip over the Havala in this world. And the individual here is Vlevi Yitzchak Bender. Vlevi Yitzchak Bender is responsible for, for editing and compiling, helping compile a six-volume set of authorized Breslov traditions called Siach Sarfei Kodesh. It's not to be mistaken, even though we've mentioned in Svasemis already, there's a collection, it's only three volumes, that comes from the house of Kotsk and Ger and Alexander, which is also called Siach Sarfei Kodesh. It's a different Siach Sarfei Kodesh. It's a very similar one also, in that it goes ahead and gives, uh, writing down some of the oral traditions in Breslov. Rav Levi Bender, just a quick pricey of his life, born in 1897, dies in 1989. He's born in Poland, dies in Eretz Yisrael in 1989. At the age of 17, he snuck away to to Uman, uh, didn't tell his parents that he was going there, and uh, he made it to Uman in the, uh, at the beginning, at the very beginning of the 20th century. There's a rabbi and leader of the Breslov community in Uman, Yerushalayim, an important, important link in the chain uh, of authentic Breslov tradition. He learned with Rav Avram Chazan, who is the son of Rav Nachman of Tolchin, and Rav Nachman of Tolchin was the main Talmud, the closest student of Rav Nassan of Breslov. 
uh, of Rav Nasav Nemrav. Rav Nasav Nemrav is, of course, main Talmud Rav Nachman. So we're really talking basically like five, cha- five links in a chain removed, right? Uh, we still have Talmudim, many Talmudim nowadays, of Rabender himself. Right, six links in the chain removed from Rabbi Nachman himself. Pretty amazing stuff, right? So he communicated many of these traditions. That's a picture of him later on in his life. His whole life, by the way, if you just go to the Wikipedia page, which is where I got most of my information, um, because I don't, I didn't know that much about the vendor. But uh, and then you go down the rabbit hole and you find all the other stuff. And the, his whole life is Sipure Maisios, we would say. I want that word to become, I want that phrase, that turn of phrase to become part of our lexicon. His whole life, Sipure Maisios. Incredible stories, right? Uh, risked his life to go to Uman, uh, snuck behind uh, the Russian authorities in 1938, were searching for him because they had turned the shoulder of Nassim built by the, by the Tzion, by Rabbi Nachman's Kever, so they had turned it into a metalworking factory. And, uh, and, 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 and through all that, he managed to go ahead and escape. They wrapped him up with bandages and he went and he managed to, uh, to elude uh, the, Rus- uh, the Soviet authorities and eventually be able to escape the Arts Yisrael. Spurimaisius, right? Uh, but uh, one person he got to learn with there was Rav Chazan who was living in Arts Yisrael would go back to Uman every year and he got stuck there at the outbreak of World War I which started in 1914 and uh, they had, he had three unter- uninterrupted years because once Rav Chazan got there he wasn't able to leave and he died in Uman. Rav Avram Chazan. So we're talking about important links. So he quotes in Siach Sarfi Kodesh, Volume 1, Number 518, the following thing. An authorized interpretation to the mashal that we just told, to the parable that we just told. Pamachas, once upon a time, Amr Zal, Shalosha Devarim, Pa'alti Eitzel Hashem Yisparach. Rabbi Nachman once said, this tradition is that I've, uh, I've managed to do three things by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I've, three things I've managed to do. What are they? As a godless kvar shibarti michem. I managed to break any sense of, of arrogance or any sense of greatness that you might feel. That when anybody looks at a Breslov or Chassid Davni, you can say, that's a Breslov or Chassid. There's a kind of humility, a kind of tzibrochenness that's uh, in Yiddish, tzibrochen. Right? That the godless, that the sense of, of arrogance, the sense of, I'm a Breslov or Chassid, anybody, right? You don't praise themselves. It reminds me of a story. I was once very, very excited. We had a carpool that used to go into YU from Queens. And, uh, and I was uh, becoming very big uh, f- you know, fan at the time. I say fan because I can't call myself a student. Fan of Rav Shagar's works, which have become really important to, to what I teach as a rabbi and what I do. It's a separate Sipurim Isis that like every, almost every step along the way, it, I, I once said this to, I, I said this to another Talmud, every step in my, in my path and like the rabbi in Chinuch, has like had Rav Shagar as a part of it. So this is a story within a story, very Rabbi Nachman-esque. Uh, when I went for my interview, uh, my first interview for my internship at Ramaz, and I, I wanted to teach at a, at a high school, Badafka in New York. I knew I had no chance because there were all these good mechanchim, and I went to go have an interview with, the, with Rabbi Dr. Jay Goldmans, who was the principal at the time, and Rabbi Goldman saw that I was holding a sefer for Rav Shagar, right? So I was still like a chenyakish kind of guy, and I would bring a sefer with me everywhere. So the sefer I brought with me was a Rav Shagar sefer. And I was all nervous, you know, like, what's, what's going to happen here? Am I going to get this? Uh, and there was a couple of other people vying to be in the kolel. I saw I was getting like a foot in the door. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I find myself, you know, having this conversation about a figure that wasn't, you know... Very hipster. I was into Rav Shagar before before Rav Shagar was a thing, right? So, and all of a sudden, having this conversation, like we connected on that, and it's like all of a sudden, when you connect like that, they already know far more about you than you could ever go ahead and say in an interview. And then when I came to Lincoln Square, 
So I mentioned it to to uh, Dr. Lana Steinhain and to Rabbi Robinson. It was also the safer I brought down with me. And then when I got to SAR, I had a conversation with Rabbi Hartstark about it because Rabbi Hartstark was uh, was thinking about Limud Gemara based on the work of Rav Shagar called the Torah Sayyage. So Rav Shagar was big thing. So Spurim is back to the second story. So in YU, when I was still there, we used to have a carpool that would go into uh, go into YU from Queens. I had moved uh, made the move from the Heights to Queens. So our carpool, a uh, couple of the guys in the carpool, big rabbis. Uh, Ravelli Belizam was in the carpool. Uh, Rav Mati Newberger was in the carpool. So once upon a time, so and and me, and uh, and, uh, and it was really nice. So we would talk Torah on the way there or other stuff. And why you hawk as why you students do, and uh, and there was a visiting scholar that year at the uh, at YU who was also a scholar at the NYU Graduate Center. His name was uh, Dr. Moz Kahana. And Dr. Moz Kahana is one of the premier uh, historians, Jewish historians nowadays, young, amazing, uh, amazing scholar, amazing rabbi, totally unique individual. And he was living in Queens that year. And he'd get a ride in with us to YU uh, because he would use the library. And, uh, and you can imagine my, my shock to realize, like, oh, my gosh, you know, like this is a real, in the flesh, real Talmud of Rav Shagar, who, I've, of course, never met because he passed away uh, just as I had heard his name for the first time and during our uh, Shana Bet, our Shana Aleph in Israel. So, so I was all excited and talking to him and, you know, gushing, you know, oh my gosh, tell me everything. He told me great stories and he looked at me once upon a time and he says, you know, everybody's so proud to say Rav Shagar now, you know, there's books, you know, Koran and Magad is putting things out and it's a big deal and, and it's like, you know, it's almost like throwing up a flag, you know, look at what I'm interested in and, um, and he said, you know, So it wasn't always such a great honor to be a Talmud of Rav Shagar. It wasn't always such a great thing to be a student of Shagar, you know, right? He said that there were, you would be so fig, you would absorb a lot of, uh, a lot of raised eyebrows sometimes because of the fact that he was an idiosyncratic figure kind of bucked a lot of the trends that you would find in the religious Zionist world at the time. A little bit free thinking. So I was thinking that over here because Rinachman is basically telling his students, Rinachman is basically telling his Talmidim, right? This is the Yayin HaMashumar in a nutshell. Right? I'm, I'm going to give you the, I'm basically going to give you what Rav Levi Yitzchak Bender quotes over here in Siach Sarfi Kodesh. Rabbi Nachman had a thing with Mufursam and Shalshaka, right? That he could, have, he could have opted to be your more standard Hasidic rabbi. He could have been opted to go ahead and to follow the, the typical path that one would expect the great grandson of the Baal Shem to do, but, but he went in a totally different direction. And he acted in strange ways. And he acted in confounding and confused people and moved and went to Eretz Yisrael and acted wild there and goes ahead and does strange things and, and would rail against these Miforsamim Shalsheke. Right? These people that he, he would say, you know, it's a covert reference to, to Hasidic rabbis who would go ahead and actually would be, you know, kind of fraudulent in their teachings, kind of uh, faking. Right? Not so hard to imagine such a thing. So he says, you know, they're offering wine to their followers. And everybody is basically saying, wow, this is, you know, this is the good stuff. This is the good Torah. This is the... Rinachma is saying, my chasidim anash. Right? Anche shlomeinu anash. So only we know. We've gotten the wine. We have the real wine. We've tasted the real wine. The real wine is something that nobody's ever going to recognize till the end. We'll read Rebender inside. As a godless kvar shibartimikem, people say it's a breast of a chasid. No, no breast of a chasid is any arrogance at all. Right? In, in being a breast of a chasid. So he says, He says another thing, he says, you'll never have a sin. Because when you do sin, right, it's not going to be enjoyable. I've already, I've already taken away the tom of sin. You could sin, but you'll still be thinking about, 
You'll, you'll be thinking about me when you sin. You'll be thinking about Shuv already when you sin. What, what does Tidbak? Tidbak, to attach Explain. itself. Explain. Right? It, won't, it, won't, it, won't, it won't become intrinsic. You'll sin as a breast liver. If you're really, if you're really breast, you'll sin. But it won't be a dying reglaim. It won't go anywhere. It won't be choter to who you essentially are because it will be lacking that lachluchis. It will be lacking that sort of the moisture, the, right? the, the, the sap of the real, the, the deliciousness of the sin. Because you already think about Shuv, you already think about Rabbi Nachman, you already think about his Torah. So he says, I've already done that for you. And then he says, Mifursam and Shalsheker, Lotuchlu Labit Pefneim. And Mifursam and Shalsheker, these uh, fakers, so you won't be able to look in their eyes. You've already tasted Hungarian wine. So this is a mushal about being a Breslover Chassid. And it's a mushal perhaps for us. Uh, I certainly can't call myself a Breslover Chassid, but it's a mushal for us when we're reading these stories. This totally unique thing of a Hasidic rabbi telling stories when we're reading that. So we're tasting a little bit of the Hungarian wine. Tasting something a little different. And then when people go ahead and say, well, you know, try this Torah. And certainly there are other Torahs out there. But we could also say we've tasted of something really unique. Something really, truly, a truly unique vintage. Right? Something that actually leaves, leaves something special on the palate that we can remember afterwards. An experience of sorts. That's Renachman's Torah. Uh, just a word about the, uh, about the Talmudic roots of the story is that the Gemara in Brachos, in the bottom, if you look in the footnote, the Gemara in Brachos says, quotes the Pasuk from Yeshaya, chapter 64, verse 3. And we say, when I hasn't seen you, we await the greatness that you do at the end of days, the messianic element of the story. And the messianic element, of course, is, is ever present in the writings of Rabbi Nachman, as uh, Professor Green, as Art Green, is, has uh, so aptly demonstrated, right? That, uh, that the messianic is always there. So he says, Ayn lo rasa. What does it mean, an eye has not seen you? Amru Yishuv ben Levi Yishuv says, ba'anava that there's going to be a great su'uda. There's going to be a great um, feast, a messianic feast, where we're going to eat from the Leviathan. Sorry, I'm mixing up the English and the Hebrew. Leviathan. The Leviathan. We're going to eat from the great Leviathan. And we're also going to drink wine that has been, that has been meshumer, wine that has been, uh, has been stored in the grapes from the, very, from the very beginnings of creation. Of course, that also ties in to the Gemara and Brachos that tells us that the Eitzadas, Right? The discussion of what exactly the Yitzhadas, the tree of knowledge, was. And one of the opinions over there is that the tree of knowledge was none other than wine. It was grapes that had been turned into wine. That's the das, the drunkenness, perhaps, that we find uh, redo with, uh, with Noah after he comes out of the Teva with creation, part two. So, so that's this reference to the wine over here. So that thread goes ahead and fleshes out this mashal into a, into a truly uh, remarkable totem. So we're going to run out of time, but I want to start the next story. Okay? I want to start the next story, um, and, uh, and I, I think it's apropos, not just because it's one of the most famous stories of Rabbi Nachman. There's an entire book written by uh, a current brass of Rav Avram Greenbaum, uh, who goes ahead and printed a book uh, called Under the Table and How to Get Up, an entire self-help book that's based upon this story. The name of the story is called The Turkey Prince. I think it's apropos because we're about to eat turkey. So that's a joke. So it's Thanksgiving coming up, so why not tell the tale of the Turkey Prince? Uh, that I, quote, I said here the Turkey Prince not just because it fits in with Thanksgiving. There are other titles that are used. The, the, the story of the Rooster Prince. Uh, the name in Hebrew is Masame Aindik. So the translation comes from a book that I want to recommend to everybody that's uh, interested in reading the stories of Renachman in English. Um, Howard Schwartz, uh, I think he's won the Jewish Book Award like three times. I wrote this book called The Palace of Pearls, and they're, um, they're basically translations 
but retellings uh, in a light, lightly retold and, and styled uh, of Rabbi Nachman's stories. Um, I, just re- I just went through uh, the seven beggars again with it. And, and he actually goes ahead. What he does is kind of interesting and uncomfortable in that he goes ahead and imagines an ending. He imagines what the seventh beggar says. Which I was like, uh, wow, okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, interest Rabbi Nachman left it out. You put it in, uh, no problem. Uh, he does a great job, actually. And he also's commentary, highly, highly recommended. Uh, so we're going to be reading from his translation over here. Um, I will read. I will read. And uh, what's going to happen is, is that uh, we're not going to be able to finish uh, tonight. But that's great because, uh, well, next Monday, next Monday is nothing. What am I thinking of? It's, a week from today. it's just a week from today. Mm-hmm. I, was, I always say that and expect somebody like something is in the back of my head, like something in, something important is happening. Right? It's always in the back of my head. Okay, nothing important. All right, so we'll be learning next week. We continue this. That's important. The Turkey Prince. So this is a translation from Howard Schwartz in the Palace of Pearls. There was once a prince who thought he was a rooster. While other princes spent their days slaying dragons, courting princesses, or learning how to rule a kingdom, this prince cast off his royal robes and spent his days crouching naked beneath a table, refusing to eat any food except kernels of corn. His father, the king, was deeply upset at this behavior. Send for the best doctors in all the land, he proclaimed. A great reward will be given to anyone who can cure my son. Doctors came from every corner of the kingdom and even from some nearby kingdoms. Well, it's a classic like sort of paradox that Rabbi Nachman tosses in just to make us throw us off our moorings. Even some nearby kingdoms came. Each tried to cure the prince, but none of them succeeded. And the prince still thought he was a rooster. He ate corn, preened his feathers, and strutted about crying, Cock-a-doodle-doo! Cock-a-doodle-doo! <laughs> when the king had almost given up hope, A wise man passing through the kingdom appeared before him. Let me stay alone with the prince for one week and I will cure him, he said to the king. Everyone else has failed, the king moaned, but you are welcome to try. So the wise man entered the prince's chamber. There he took off his clothes, crawled under the table and began to eat kernels of corn just like the prince. And the prince looked at the man with suspicion. Who are you, he asked. I am a rooster, said the wise man. And he continued to munch on the corn. After a short while, he asked the prince, Who are you? I too am a rooster, said the prince. And after the prince treated the wise man as an equal. The two strutted about, preening their feathers and crying, Cock-a-doodle-doo. I'm just going to do it again. When they made, thank you. I, uh, I, I do a lot of old McDonald's with my daughters. When they, <laughs> well, I have a lot of practice. When they had made their home under the table for a while and had become good friends, the wise man suddenly crawled out from under the table and dressed himself. The prince was shocked. The rooster doesn't wear clothes, he said. The wise man remained calm. I am a rooster and I'm wearing clothes. The prince considered this for a day or two and then he decided to imitate his friend and he too put on his clothes. A few days later, the wise man took some of the tasty food delivered to them every day, food that they had refused to eat and carried it beneath the table and ate it. The prince was astonished. Roosters don't eat that kind of food. But the wise man calmly said, a rooster can eat any food he wants and still be a good rooster. And he continued to eat the food. The prince watched this for a while and then he decided to imitate his friend and he too ate from the tasty food. Next day, the wise man stopped crouching beneath the table. He stood up proudly on his two feet and started to walk like a man. 
What are you doing? asked the prince. A rooster can't get up and walk around like that. But the wise man said to the prince, A rooster can't, I am a rooster, and if I want to walk like this, I will. And he continued to walk upright. The prince peered at him from beneath the table. And then he decided to imitate his friend, and he too stood up and walked on his two feet. So, in this way, the prince began to eat, dress, and walk like a man. The week's time was up and no longer did he act like a rooster. The king was overjoyed, of course, and welcomed his son back with open arms. As for the wise man, why, he collected his reward and went happily on his way. So that's uh, one of the most famous, it's one of the most famous Rabbi Nachman stories, and this is such a rich story, rich parable. It's been retold in so many different ways. I just want to point out a few things. I'm not going to give you the key uh, to the story, and we'll finish with this. We still have... Uh, I still had two more stories that I'd wanted to do tonight. Mir Hashem. Next week we'll talk about the tainted wheat. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, we're going to also talk about the wealthy miser, the blind musician. And, uh, and I want to return to Seven Beggars. I want to return and hopefully start uh, my favorite story, Maisa Me'abi Tachon, uh, which is very exciting to be able to teach in this venue. Um, but I want to point out a few things in the story and hopefully you'll mull over it and uh, send me an email and uh, we could continue the conversation. Um, so the first thing is that uh, it's a classic motif in stories of a king having a child that's sick or that's ill and needs saving. Uh, who's the child usually in these kind of stories? It's a princess. It's usually a princess. Here the gender is switched. And here we find that the, the sickness is, is a prince. Usually it's the prince, the valiant white knight that's coming to go in and save somebody. It's not the case here. And the second thing is that uh, usually when we find illness, it's some kind of physical malady, right? Uh, even like in Snow White and the Seven Doors, you, you eat the poisoned apple and you fall asleep, a kind of comatose state. Here the sickness is a mental illness. Here the sickness is a kind of madness, if you will. And another thing is that the easiest interpretation, I said I wouldn't give the key, the easiest interpretation is that the wise man is the tzaddik. In fact, the wise man is Rabbi Nachman. And the prince is us, right? Acting like roosters. And that the tzaddik shows us that you could eat good food and still be a prince. That you could walk upright. And still be a rooster. And still be, right? and still be a rooster. Sorry, you could still be a human being. And you could, you could elevate yourself. The tzaddik, thank you. The tzaddik elevates us, brings us up. That's the easy. That's the easy, readily apparent, readily available interpretation. Furthermore, this madness that we're talking about, just to go a step deeper, so maybe it's not really madness at all. You know why? Because if you look at the end of the story, is the, is the prince cured? Not really. Why not? Shook your head first. What? He still thinks, he's, he still a thinks he's a rooster. He's just doing other stuff. Right? He's a very sophisticated rooster. Right? Thinking of River Freyville, sophisticated cow. Right? A very sophisticated rooster, but still a rooster nonetheless. The wise man, if the king knows anything, the king will say, you just put a band-aid on the problem over here. Maybe it's not madness at all. Maybe the reason that it's tolerable, maybe the reason that this wise man is able to conceal it is because it's not madness at all. It's simply nonconformity. It's an ability to, to do differently than what everybody else does. Or to at least recognize that perhaps everybody else is mad. And the wise man is the only one that's able to recognize the prince and to say, actually, we're the only ones that have got it here. It's time to act like a rooster but we have to fool everybody else. You could be a rooster, but fool everybody else. What does that mean to walk around in a world where the norm or what people say the norm is is actually quite different than what the truth is supposed to be? 
Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not madness at all. Maybe the only two people here that really get what's going on are the two people who say, hey, we're roosters, but we're going to walk and talk and act like princes. We're going to fool everybody else. Even on a, uh, even on a deeper level, so if you know that, uh, if, you, if you know from our daily prayers, right, so the rooster, right, so the rooster, or I would say that we can, now we're switching from turkey to rooster, let's say that the translation is rooster, but the, the rooster figures prominently in our daily prayers in a very interesting, unique context. What's the rooster? Brachos. Brachos. The very first bracha that we say in our daily prayers, and it has to jump out of you, the rooster, right? Of all animals, acting like a rooster. So that should jump out because the rooster is associated with the trait of understanding. Not just understanding, but lahavin davar mitoch davar. Deep understanding that's signified by bina, Right? That deeper understanding, that rooster is something that, uh, and why is, why is it associated with it? So, so you know, like uh, in the Siddur Maharal, I forgot what Sefer he quotes, so he says, why is the rooster associated with understanding? It's doing such a rote thing. It's just, it's, it's cock-a-doodle doing every day when it's, when it's the sunrise. Yeshiva Dakoto, you could hear it coming from, from like, from the villages nearby. You'd always hear the roosters. And they, and they, and they literally go right on time. But that kind of understanding is an understanding that can't be moved. What's the deepest kind of understanding? Is an understanding that no matter what, no matter what day, no matter rain, sleet, sun, hail, everything, no matter what the rooster is going to crow at, at that time, it's going to make that sound at that time. That's a kind of understanding that maybe can sustain somebody when they look at everything, the seas of chain all around them, and say, I'm actually going to remain true to myself. I'm going to remain true to what I am, even if people are not going to like that. Even if people are going to think that I'm quite mad. Even if people are going to go ahead and maybe in the Yain Hungari kick me out, right? Maybe they're going to knock me out on my tuchus and I'm going to have to go ahead and say, you don't, know what, you don't know what Hungarian wine is at all. You don't know what being a rooster is at all. That kind of nonconformity is perhaps what Rabbi Nachman is saying. That's what happens when you taste the Hungarian wine. That's what it means to go ahead and to say, that's how, you jump. that's how you jump over the world. You don't get dragged down by what everybody else tells you or get caught up in that game. And you say, I'm going to jump over it. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to crow like a rooster. And there might be tachbulas, there might be ways, wise ways in which the tzaddik teaches us. But maybe being the rooster isn't also bad. There's classical interpretations say that the rooster know that that's the lowliness, that we have to go ahead and be raised up to that, tamalos tzaddikim. And it also is sovil, it also tolerates that kind of interpretation as well. Next week we'll continue with another story of madness, right? And we'll talk about madness figuring into, into the Torah of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And uh, maybe the autobiographical element of that. But, uh, but we're going to the autobiographical element, uh, I mean to say that Rabbi Nachman is described as acting like mad on his trip to Eretz Yisrael. He himself acted like this. And even in the story, he's described as, as cawing and cackling around like a child and like an animal to get people to not know who he was, to be incognito. But Od Chazon Lemoy, we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the wealthy miser, blind musician. Thank you all so much for coming. I hope everybody is